Hi, my name is Chris Brennan, and you're listening to the Astrology Podcast. This episode was recorded on Tuesday, May 1st, 2018, uh, starting at 3.27 p.m. in Denver, Colorado, and this is the 155th episode of the show. For more information about how to subscribe to the podcast and help support the production of future episodes by becoming a patron, please visit theastrologypodcast.com slash subscribe. In this episode, Kelly Surtees is joining me to take some questions from patrons and other listeners of the Astrology Podcast about their birth charts and to demonstrate how we would go about answering those questions from a technical perspective. Uh, Hey, Kelly, thanks for joining me today. Hey, Chris, thanks for having me. I'm excited for our little experiment today. Yes, so this is an experiment. Uh, I've been wanting to do something like this for a while. So we're this is a sort of twofold experiment. On the one hand, we are experiment with experimenting with you know demonstrating how a, a professional practicing astrologer would actually go about uh, answering questions from a client and what sort of techniques and what what our technical approach is to answering certain types of questions. And then on the other hand, I'm also doing an experiment uh, with live streaming where. Uh, this episode is being live streamed uh, to YouTube right now, and there's a live sort of chat box where we can take some some questions or comments from listeners. So I'm not going to be able to focus on the chat box too much because I don't want to be too distracted from the matter at hand. And in the future, I'll probably have like a moderator or somebody who helps to take questions uh, and stuff from the the chat room. But yeah, so. Part of the the genesis of this is that I haven't been doing consultations for a year or two ago. I stopped when I was writing my book to focus on that, and then once I got the book out, the podcast has really dominated a lot of my focus and my time each month. So I've been wanting to get back to reading charts, but I wanted to find a way to merge that with what I have to do with the podcast at the same time. And I thought this might pr- provide an interesting opportunity for doing that by you know, taking a bunch of questions from listeners and then actually going through how we would interpret those charts in a podcast episode. So that, that's part of the experiment today. Very cool. Cool. All right. So um, yeah, so thanks for joining me. Uh, let's go ahead and start. I'm going to share the chart for right now. Um, so we did get some charts and questions um, submitted. You did a call out to you, Chris. Yeah, so what we did for this one, we were a little unsure about whether to take them live. So I actually did an experiment last night where I did my first live stream and I just like took questions from the audience. And that was actually kind of fun and interesting. Um, but it's a little bit more of like a wild card in terms of you're not really sure what you're going to get and uh, you just sort of do things on the fly. So today what we did is we took some questions ahead of time and then I sort of ordered them and wrote them down in a document and cast some of the charts ahead of time. We didn't otherwise do any prep for this, so this is still largely on the fly, but um, it's a little bit more of a a middle ground between just like taking questions live from the audience versus, uh, yeah, basically prepping ahead of time, like doing a normal consultation. So part of the process of the, part of the purpose of this though, is to show off what what an astrologer's approach would be to answering certain types of questions. And while this doesn't completely recreate what an actual consulting setting or consultation setting would be because we don't have the person in front of us to provide feedback or or for us to ask them questions or what have you, it'll at least like show people, I think, a little bit of the technical approach. And I think we'll be able to reflect on some of some of that while we're while we're doing this and talking. Yeah. Okay. I'm excited. Chat consult work is Fantastic, but it's 
kind of magical and there's a lot of pieces, a lot of moving parts, I guess. So it's good to be able to show just a like a slice of that. Yeah, and I mean that maybe that's worth reflecting on here at the start. I mean, this is different than a normal consultation is typically two people having a, a verbal exchange with one another and actually like talking over let's say like a 75 minute time period, right? Yeah, 60, 75, 90 minutes somewhere in that range. Uh, I think is one of it's that sort of a common time frame. And you're right, it's it is more of a conversation where there is a bit of back and forth. So we're really just going to be sharing, I guess, the astrologer's side or, you know, I guess showing a little bit of the insights or the ideas that an astrologer might bring to a consult, which then are explored through the conversation of the consult itself, I guess. Right. So it it becomes more of a dialogue a little bit because on the one hand, the astrologer has the sort of abstract placements of the birth chart, which gives certain indications, but then through dialoguing with the client, it comes alive a little bit more. And I think the astrologer gets a clearer picture of how the placements are actually working out in the person's life, not in the sense of like, you know, cold reading them or picking up on clues or something like that, but that there is a difference in terms of hearing the specifics and the details about how some of the broad archetypal placements have played out in a person's life that um, I think helps to clarify things a lot more immediately than if you when you're actually talking to somebody compared to you know here where we won't really get a lot of feedback from from the individuals directly yeah absolutely absolutely and i mean it's the nuances you know you've got the the theory or the technical component of what this planet you know should do or what it should look like and then you know the nuances or the specifics of that uh it's lovely to be able to kind of meld the two through that dialogue Right, because additionally, there's like different ways that this a single placement could manifest. So maybe there's like a broad archetypal meaning of that placement, but then you might have two different people in two different lives who have manifested it in archetypally similar, but still in terms of the specifics, somewhat different ways. That's a really beautiful distinction, Chris. I have actually been looking for that phrase when the placement points to archetypally similar uh, experiences. But you know the archetype could manifest in four or five different specific ways, and it's just sort of checking in with the client about which specific manifestation of this archetypal experience is it that you're working with, basically. And they're the things. This is the beauty of doing chart consult work. If you are passionate about astrology, is that you get to better understand how the archetypes can manifest through the dialogues you have with your clients. Right. I mean, that's one of my favorite things because that's one of the cool things that they don't tell you early on is that every astrologer, every consultation that you do, you actually do learn something new because each chart represents a unique and each person's life represents a unique manifestation of every single placement. Even if you've seen similar themes or you've seen it work out in similar ways before, there's still going to be some unique spin about that specific person's life that's going to teach you something new as the astrologer about how each placement can work out. Yeah. Yes. And that's that's the best part. All right. Cool. So all right. So so we're going to be missing a bit of that component, but I think that's all right in the future we can maybe experiment with having people on. Like last night I actually brought some people on on webcam with mics and everything else for like impromptu brief consultations, which was fun and interesting in and of itself, but from for here we're just going to sort of demonstrate more of the technical component from the astrologer's perspective. 
So let's go ahead and jump into our first um, question then. So I think I went ahead and I, I removed all like last names. So everybody, I, I said, you know, please send in your birth data and your chart and your question and your name, and you have to be comfortable sharing that, having that data shared publicly. Uh, and everybody said that that was cool. Who submitted a question? Uh, I went ahead and removed all last names, so we're just going to be on a first name basis with everyone whose charts that we're reading today. And the first question that I got, uh, or the first question that we're going to talk about, was from a patron named Brianna, or Brianna, who was born December twenty sixth, nineteen eighty seven, at ten o two a.m. in Wilmar, Minnesota. So I've got the chart up, and I'm sharing it right now. Can you see it? Okay. Yes, I can. So she's Aquarius rising. Sure, okay, so that's she has our groundwork. Yeah, eight degrees of Aquarius rising. And her question is, um, and I and I tended to like tend towards the questions that were a little bit briefer or more concise, just because I felt like it would be hard to read the super long ones. So here's her. Uh, here's the question that she sent in. She says, "I'm I'm learning about dignities and abilities right now." And I used the point system to find that Mars is the most dignified planet in my chart, followed by Saturn. I have a day chart, so how does this affect my Mars's behavior? Uh, my main question is basically, does a super dignified malefic planet in a day chart act with more maleficence, or does the highly dignified state lead to more mitigated and constructive Mars? Uh, I know none of this takes into account the aspects that Mars is making, but nonetheless. So that's that's basically her question is... It's partially a question about how did to how do dignified malefics act, and when you strengthen a malefic by giving it zodiacal strength, does that make it, um, in terms of the native, more positive or more negative? Yeah, and that's a question that students often have. Like, you know, Mars or Saturn is my out of sect um, malefic, but it's in you know this is a great example. Mars is in Scorpio in the tenth house. You know what do I what do I kind of do with that? Um, do you want to jump in first, Chris, or do you want me to? And it's like, <laughs> um, I mean, sh- I can give my my answer first if you want. I mean, it's okay. So so this yeah. is a so one of the things I look at. One of the things I was talking about and demonstrating last night that I I think it's worth repeating, and I'll probably repeat a bunch of times today because it's always the first thing I look at in a chart, which is is it a day chart or is it a night chart? So she was already she uh, Brianna was already familiar with this concept of sect, and so she was already taking it for granted as part of her question. But it's part of the sort of underlying presumption underlying the question, which is why Mars would otherwise tend to be the more challenging planet in her chart, and it's because she has a day chart because the sun is above the horizon in the top half of the chart. So automatically, right there, just based on sect, we would know that Mars is going to tend to be more challenging for her because she has a day chart. Whereas Saturn is going to tend to be more constructive uh, because Saturn acts more constructively in day charts. If this was a night chart, then it would be the reverse, and Saturn would be more challenging and Mars would be more constructive. So part of the thing underlying her question is Mars has already been identified as the most the more difficult malefic in her chart because she has a day chart. However, because Mars is in Scorpio and therefore has some zodiacal strength because it's in its own sign. Does that therefore mitigate Mars and make it less malefic, or does that strengthen it in a negative way and make it more malefic? So my answer to that is actually that um, dignified malefics uh, tend to act better, and, and this is both 
the traditional answer to this question, as well as the one that I've found in experience, that when a malefic is dignified by being in its own sign or exaltation, it usually tends to act in a way that's more constructive and beneficial for the native. So um, that would be a positive mitigating factor as far as she's concerned, the fact that Mars is in its own sign. And typically that means that even if that planet still represents um, the most difficult planet in the chart, or it's still going to tend to manifest some of its more negative significations, if you have major mitigations like that, usually you don't see the worst case scenario end of the spectrum. But instead, even though it's the most challenging planet in the chart, it tends to be um, much more moderate compared to if you looked at somebody else's chart who had Mars in the 10th house in a day chart, but it wasn't in Scorpio and it was in some other sign where Mars didn't have any dignity or mitigation, you would see them experiencing things in, in a much more challenging way in terms of the 10th house compared to what she is likely to experience. So that, that would be my answer. Where, where would you go with that? Yeah, I know. So, I mean, the other point, Chris, we probably should say is that we might approach these things slightly differently. We might come from exactly the same place, but I think that's also the beauty of, uh, you know, different astrologers uh, take. Although I think on this one, we're absolutely on the same page because there is a level, what I have observed with planets like this, this Mars, which is technically the out of sect malefic because it's a day chart, but this Mars has a high level of being functional because it is in a sign where it's got some great dignity and it's in a house where it can be productive. And Mars particularly can be quite useful or productive. These are not necessarily technical terms, but we can do something with this Mars energy, particularly when it shows up around the, around a topic like career. Um, it just seems to be that we can we can use that Mars in service of one's work or one's profession. And sometimes that can be, you know, working in a way that reflects the nature of Mars. So taking some initiative, maybe showing a bit of leadership. I mean, it is Mars in Scorpio, so there may be some strategic or research component. There may be an analytical or a, di- a diagnostic component uh, because planets in Scorpio really like to kind of you know, dig in and and sort of do that um, deep problem solving. Uh, so I agree. I think the there's it's if you like the technical term uses the mitigation factor that this is actually really well functioning out of sect malefic, and you're not going to see the classic um, problems, or you're not going to see extreme difficulties. I don't think to do with this Mars. Um, yeah. So I, I that's how I would go about it. Sure. And and one of the things that's tra- challenging though I find sometimes when trying to explain that to a client is that you know the client doesn't have their their reference point is just their own life and so they may have already experienced some challenging things within that area of their life in this case let's say career uh because it's in the 10th whole sign house but when you try to explain one of the challenges from the astrologer's perspective is you have to explain that might be challenging to you. However, you know there's much worse case scenarios that you could be ex- experiencing in terms of this placement, and you're not likely. It's not likely to be that bad for you. So that's a little challenging, though, because as an astrologer, it's like you've seen dozens or like hundreds of placements like this, or worst case scenarios, and you've heard how sometimes the the extreme worst case scenario can work out in sometimes very very rough, sometimes very traumatic ways. But it's hard to sometimes convey that to the client in terms of making them understand what the full range of possibilities are 
and how theirs is somewhere sort of in between the most extreme and the most mild. Yeah. And that's something that I think every astrologer has to kind of hold some awareness around is that we bring a huge amount of kind of technical awareness or theoretical understanding to each chart. But what the client brings is is just their lived experiences. And yeah, finding that way to kind of language with them around, yeah, there may be I mean, and this would be some of the kinds of things that I might think is it's, it's a Mars level problem. So Mars level problems are kind of can be annoying, but they're often manageable or you can remediate them, especially with a Mars like this that has the mitigation already of the sign and the house factor. We can often, you know, maybe they're, they're early in her career. There were some outbursts or impatience that interfered with some of her career opportunities, for instance, if we take that 10th house topic, but possibly, or potentially there's that ability that that settles down or that she's able to find a way to just know that tendency she might have and work around it and to move forward in her career, regardless, if that makes sense. Because uh, as you say, Chris, sometimes you can see a really a really difficultly placed out of sect Mars in the tenth, which is much harder to overcome and, and may not be possible potentially. But this is not one of those Mars tenth house placements, right? I mean, one of the you know like worst case scenarios, or or let's say think of some negative scenarios of like Mars in the tenth house could be like strife when it comes to a person's career. Um, having conflicts with you know superiors or bosses, having a boss that's out to get you or like actively works against your interests at some point, um, feeling frustration or or like anger surrounding uh, one's career and one's overall life direction uh, as a sense of like frustration. Although that might be a better keyword for Saturn, but certainly issues surrounding like like anger in one's career for sometimes good reasons and other times bad reasons can be uh, major themes. Um, I'm trying to think of like some more like worst worst case scenarios I could I could compare this to or compare it to you know versus a, a mitigated Mars. Um, have you had any like major clients or can you think of any major client stories of like a Mars in the tenth house that was really rough? Not with Mars in the tenth, I don't think. Um, yes, yeah, so I'm trying to think of some of the worst case scenarios. Um, I think yeah, the strife the the aggression at work, the feeling of, you know, maybe being attacked by a boss or a superior at work is something that could be there. Um, you know, the funny thing, this is just something that I've observed, I, is that when you get these out-of-sect malefics showing up around work, and this is, a, as we've said, it's a productive, more functional version of that, sometimes what the person does is that they actually have a career that is targeted towards working with symptoms of that problem in society. For instance, and this actually, this is one thing I have seen with a Mars in cancer that was somehow connected to the 10th is uh, working with young males who have anger problems. And so it's, it's, and this is that idea of, you know, does the chart describe the person themselves or, or the people around them? And it was sort of like, okay, that's how that difficult Mars in the 10th or maybe it was aspecting the 10th, I can't remember off the top of my head, was showing up that their work was about helping remediate a problem which is described by the nature of that out-of-sect malefic. So Mars in Cancer, yeah, there was some a client who worked with, uh, you know, youth who had, and young males specifically, who had some very 
um, you know, strong issues to do with anger. And so I thought that was interesting that the the problem described by the planet shows up, but the person was working to support those people rather than was that person with that problem. Yeah, that's a really good point. And I'm glad you brought that up because that makes me think of one um, classic example of that that I've used in lectures, which is uh, Angelina Jolie's chart. Uh, oh, yes. Who has, actually, let me pull it up really quickly. So this is Angelina Jolie's chart, and she has Cancer Rising with Mars and Aries in the 10th whole sign house. And again, it's this is another one of those instances where it's the most difficult planet in the chart because this is, again, a day chart. However, it has some mitigation both because Mars is at its own domicile, as well as the fact that Jupiter is also there in Aries in the 10th whole sign house. And she ended up manifesting that partially in the way that you talked about, where I think it was after she did the Tomb Raider movie somewhere, I think it was like in Southeast Asia, and she ended up becoming very interested and focused on humanitarian efforts, um, especially helping children from war-torn countries who had gone through like major traumatic events and loss and, and setting up foundations in order to help children and things of that nature. Yeah, that's this is a great example, Chris. I'm glad you mentioned this chart. Yeah, I think she filmed or there's something connection to Vietnam, which is where Angelina adopted her first son from, I think. Mm-hmm. And yeah, working specifically with children who had suffered horrific physical injuries um, and trauma from war. So that's that's what you can do when you have some of these Mars placements, if you like, connected to the tenth house. Um, right. Yeah. And, and so, hers is interesting because the the child part is being imported partially because it rules the fifth house because Scorpio yes. is on the cusp of the fifth whole sign house, and then it's in the tenth. Um, so it's sort of like importing those children's significations into the the area of career and reputation. A hundred percent. And that's. I mean, this is also. I think probably. Well, I know I do it, Chris. I'm sure you've just done it. So yeah, what is this? What is the other topic tied to this planet? And in the client or the, the listener's example, Brianna, I think she had Aries ruling the third house, perhaps. Um, and right. yeah, so it's, and then, then this is a question or a, a, this is something I would want to bring up with the client is, you know, how are the topics of the third house, whether that's education, whether it's communication, whether it's strategy, whether there's some connection to sibling, um, how do they tie into this 10th house Mars, for instance? Right. Because then that's interesting in her chart because she has Jupiter, which is in a day chart. So that's therefore the most positive planet in the third house ruled by that Mars, which is then importing those third house significations of, of things like communication into the 10th. So that would definitely be the area that we would focus on in terms of of career significations, but also you know the potential for for gifts or positive windfalls or abilities in that area that might be able to work out well or work out in a constructive fashion. Because that's the other thing about dignified planets and sometimes dignified malefics is sometimes they can act as a a special talent or a tool that the person is able to use to their advantage. Yes. And this is Jupiter in a fire sign in a day chart. So, I mean, it's Jupiter in a day chart, but just being in the fire. I know Jupiter technically takes all the power in the, in fire in the night, but it just, Jupiter in a fire sign just seems to be a little bit more productive. Um, I mean, it's Jupiter in a day chart, so it's going to be helpful. Jupiter rules the midheaven degree. So it's interesting that there's sort of that connection between the ruler of the midheaven and the ruler of the 10th house by whole sign. Uh, that one is in the other's sign. Okay, right. That's a really good point. Um, I didn't even catch that, but that that is a good point, and that does bring 
Jupiter even more into the context of some of the career significations because the degree of the MC falls in Sagittarius in this whole sign chart. Yeah. Yeah. So this is, and this is probably the point where in a session, the client is now feeling very excited or interested in some of the topics and points that have been raised and will start to want to share their experiences or how this shows up for them. And that's the beauty of then, you know, the conversation kind of carries forward from there. Right. Yeah. I wish that she was here right now because we would talk to her and ask her some questions and then there would be some either validation of or or some, you know, pullback and saying like, no, that that's not been an area that's come up before or some confirmation that, yeah, this is an area that I've gravitated towards career-wise. Um, and we would sort of have that dialogue and then continue to explore because once you get that feedback, you're able to refine you know, which areas the life has already gravitated towards and which specific manifestation that's gone down. And then that becomes like a, a process where you can further clarify what's going on in the chart for both you and the client. A hundred percent. And I was just thinking, it's almost like there's discussion, which is often, so initially when you sit down and consult, there's discussion, which usually you as the astrologer are going to be initiate or leading. Then there's an opportunity for feedback and exchange where the client will contribute or comment on what's been said. And that allows you, the astrologer, to refine what you're doing or where you're going. And then we just carry on and go deeper into the process. Right. Definitely. All right. But for the purposes of this, and at least for the, the limited purposes of the specific question that was asked, I think we've we've covered enough already. Um, yeah. If people want to find out more information about that, you should definitely check out, uh, I believe it was episode uh, episode 28. So episode 28 I did with Michael Ofek, and we did a whole episode on mitigating factors in traditional astrology, um, one of which is, is planets being dignified zodiacally, but there's also other important mitigating factors like configurations with benefics um, and other things like that. So check out that episode, episode 28 of the Astrology Podcast at theastrologypodcast.com for more information about that. All right, so let's move on to our second question, and this was uh, this question was submitted by a listener named Jessica, who asked, uh, "How will the major midlife transits present themselves in my life? Uh, what may show up, and how can I best prepare?" And she was born June seventh of nineteen seventy seven at two twenty four p.m. in Seattle, Washington. And if I calculated everything correctly, she has three degrees of Libra rising. So okay. she's par- she's partially asking about this because she's in that that range of you know midlife being around you know forty or the early forties, and especially one of the major transits that's associated with that is the Uranus opposition, uh, which happens in the early to mid forties, and that's the. It's like there's already a general concept out there that exists of like the. I'm going to the ephemeris your, for our your ephemeris. Yeah, I've got my ephemeris in in uh, reaching within reach as well. Sorry, you were saying about the midlife transits, Chris. Uh, yeah, just that there's already a popular concept of the midlife crisis around the early 40s to mid 40s, and I think astrologers often associate that with the Uranus opposition, which which happens around that time frame. So in her case. Her natal Uranus is at eight degrees of Scorpio in the second whole sign house. And so as soon as Uranus transits or ingresses, as soon as it enters into Taurus here in a couple of weeks, uh, that's really going to be the beginning or the onset or the initial phases of her Uranus opposition, which eventually will go exact 
what, probably a, a year or two or three from now? Uh, I think it's 2020 because her Uranus is at eight uh, Scorpio. It's not till mid-2020 that the Uranus opposition will happen. Um, the other transit that is connected to the midlife transits, if you like, is there's. I think there's a series of three. So there's the Pluto square Pluto, which tends to happen in the late 30s. And she's already had that because her natal Pluto is at 11 Libra and currently Pluto is like 21 Capricorn. So that's, you know, done and dusted. And then the other transit is Neptune square Neptune. So that's the one that she's actually in the middle of now because Neptune is moving through the middle part of Pisces, squaring her natal Neptune at 14 Sag. Uh, so that's part. And, and I guess because of the sun Jupiter opposite Neptune natally, um, that may be where that question is coming from. And then, yeah, the Uranus, um, this would be a client who, one of the things I might say to them is, look, Uranus opposite Uranus is definitely coming down the pipeline, but there's a few things that you'll be exploring or working through beforehand. And the Uranus conjunct, the Venus-Mars conjunction in her natal chart would be something I would potentially want to discuss. Um, and yeah, yeah, I think you've got yeah, the chart so up. Let's yeah, just mention sorry, that really just quickly. Dived in. <laughs> That seems huge. So she has natally a conjunction of Venus and, and Mars at, at one degree of Taurus uh, in the eighth whole sign house, and that Venus is ruling her ascendant, and the Mars is ruling her. Well, well, Venus is ruling both her ascendant and her eighth house, and Mars is ruling her seventh and second houses. So that that's going to get hit by Uranus as soon as that ingress takes place. So that that's what you're talking about there. Totally. And because Venus rules the ascendant, I would be really honing in on that. The, the Mars, the Venus Mars conjunction natally would be a significant thing that we might want to discuss because Venus is the ascendant ruler. Uh, but yeah, the, the Uranus transit to that conjunction, um, I think that would be, that would be the above the fold lead with this type event that I would go with. Sure. And it's really interesting. So, I mean, for me, one of the things I pay attention to anytime a planet, even an outer planet, ingresses into a new sign, just the notion that any exact aspects that it's going to make eventually in that sign will start building up at that point. And sometimes that's going to be more of a quiet buildup, and other times it's going to be more obvious, but that typically, if you're paying close enough attention, there's some shift in the person's life at that point that ends where the the circumstances that will eventually culminate at the exact aspect will start to constellate in the person's life at that time. So for me, it's like I think that Uranus opposition begins already as soon as Uranus goes into Taurus for her, but it's just not going to hit that full sort of high point or the full fever pitch until it gets to eight degrees of Taurus and opposes her natal Uranus at eight Scorpio. But the idea that things are already going to start changing is probably emphasized already by the fact that that Venus-Mars conjunction is so early in Taurus, and therefore you're already going to have this very important Uranian-type event take place really early on after that ingress of Uranus into Taurus. Agreed, agreed. And I think, uh, I mean, one of the really interesting patterns in this, in Jessica's natal chart is the Oh, hang on, back, back. Let me just um, summarize because from I, and this is one thing I learned that once when I got into more traditional astrology, which is what you're talking about, Chris. As soon as the transit planet enters the new sign, 
the transit is has begun. So the idea of anyone with Saturn in Capricorn has begun their Saturn return transit, even though the transiting Saturn may be degrees and years away from hitting your exact Saturn. So we're building into that. Um, And yeah, what's interesting for Jessica is there is a little bit of a weird pattern here. The degrees aren't exact, but when we're talking about Uranus coming into Taurus and activating new things, it is the Venus-Mars conjunction, but there is also the sextile up to the midheaven. And when the Uranus opposition becomes exact, transiting Uranus will also be sextile the natal moon, which I think was at eight degrees as well in Pisces. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I think you're on, like, I, I agree, Chris, completely that we're going to start seeing these, these shiftings, if you like, or these stirrings, this restlessness, this desire to, you know, shake things up, make big uh, developments or to turn life upside down in some way that leads to more freedom or more independence from these Uranus transits. And it does, because it for this client, um, it would be Uranus coming into the eighth house. It does make me think of changes to do with finances and how that can be part of the decision-making process. And one thing I've been observing a lot is the eighth house, if this person, Jessica, is in a relationship, the financial change may actually be to do with a partner, um, a romantic partner or a business partner that then has that flow-on effect to her. It may be her own tax situation or an investment of hers, uh, which tend to be a little bit more eighth house money topics. Uh, but there is definitely this feeling that we're getting, uh, we're jumping on the roller coaster. And we need to we need to think about differences. Yeah, uh, that that keyword keywords for Uranus for me are always like unexpected disruptions or unexpected changes, and sometimes that can be constructive ones. Like sometimes it can come from within the person themselves, where they just suddenly have the urge to start making radical changes in their life. Other times it can be events that are either other people in the person's life or other circumstances where that energy sort of comes into their life from the outside. And there's this notion of sort of unexpected radical changes. Um, For her, it's interesting that there's like a blend between those two, because normally if it was like the ruler of the ascendant and it was like in the first or it was in, you know, one degree of Taurus, we would say maybe maybe some of those changes are going to come from within you or going to have to do with you specifically, since the ruler of the ascendant is the planet most closely connected with the native in the chart but the fact that that Mars is also there conjunct Venus in the same degree at one Taurus and it's ruling the seventh house um, makes me think that it's also tied in with a partnership, either if she's already in a partnership and some unexpected um, changes happening within the context of that, or if she's not in a partnership, then some sort of relationship coming into her life that ends up changing things in an unexpected way. Completely. And that's one of the signatures within the fabric of this natal chart is that the ruler of the ascendant and the ruler of the descendant are conjunct. So there is that sense of, you know, those two things or those two parts of life are activated in tandem uh, around at the same time. Right. And, and I like that you mentioned that both of those are sextile the degree of the midheaven, which is at four degrees of cancer, because I've seen that. That's a major, from a Hellenistic perspective, that's the major mitigating factor for planets that are in difficult houses, Mm. where if a planet's in a difficult house, like the 8th or the 12th or the 6th, but it's configured uh, or aspecting the degree of the midheaven within three degrees, then usually you'll tend to see some of the more positive 
um, manifestations or significations of that difficult house placement come to the forefront. So that's where you do definitely get more financial significations having to do with the eighth house rather than you know issues pertaining to mortality or something like that. Yeah, that's. I'm glad you mentioned that, Chris, because I think that mitigation of planets in the sixth, eighth, or twelfth house in aspect to the midheaven is a really important one because it can change the nature of that planet quite profoundly. It's it's connected to the midheaven more than it is placed in that house, if you like, or that's it gives it a bit of an out or an outlet. Yeah, because it's another one of those things, just like with sect, where so much of the discussion and like the the generation of astrologers that came in in the 1960s and 70s and 80s that were really into modern psychological astrology, and they would look at things like the Saturn return or a person's Saturn placement, and they would see that you know, well, some people go through that transit and it works out very well, and other people go through it and it's a it's a disaster. But as a result of that, it's clear that that Saturn is not always malefic, and therefore that was the justification for rejecting the distinction between malefic and benefic altogether. They said, let's just get rid of this distinction and stop referring to benefics and malefics at all, because clearly sometimes the malefics can be constructive. But then that's where the concept of sect comes up, where there are technical reasons why sometimes one person's Saturn placement can work out more constructively and another person's Saturn placement can work out more in a more challenging fashion. And sometimes you can see that if you're paying attention to specific technical things in the chart. So I feel like this is another one of those things where sometimes people will point out that, well, this person had a very positive manifestation of the eighth house or the twelfth house, and this person had a very negative manifestation. So let's not make any distinctions like that at all in terms of, you know, good and bad houses. But Oftentimes, I find that the people who are able to work out those placements more constructively, at least more consistently in their life, they tend to have mitigations like that, like that configuration to the midheaven. Yeah, it's really such a powerful point. And it's almost like a bit of a lesson or a clue as to the importance of having the whole picture or the whole process rather than just one part of it. Uh, Yeah, exactly. And then- I think because this question was about, you know, how might the midlife transits trigger her? What I think we've done is we've sort of honed in on potentially the more significant of the midlife transits because the Uranus one, the Uranus opposition is activating these other components in the chart. Um, The Neptune square though, that the Neptune square, Neptune uh, transit for this person, for Jessica, is a little more significant or juiced up, if you like, because in her natal chart, the Sun and Jupiter are opposite natal Neptune. And then transiting Neptune is kind of creating this temporary T-square, if you like. Transiting Neptune square natal Neptune, but Neptune will transiting Neptune will also be square the natal Sun at the same time. Now, the Sun doesn't rule an angular house, for instance, but it is still the sect light. So um, I think that would be something for her to be aware of as well, potentially. Sure, definitely. That in terms of that Neptune transit and that natal opposition between Neptune at fourteen Sag and the Sun and Jupiter conjunction at fourteen and sixteen Gemini. Yeah, and that's just the Sun. The Neptune Sun part is just starting in the middle of twenty eighteen. Um, that's it. Then, and I think that's the part I would probably want to explore with the client would be the Neptune sun component more than the Neptune square Neptune um, piece. Sure. Uh, yeah. yeah. I mean, that can be a really um, 
interesting transit in terms of um you know one's i mean it almost it's almost like two it almost sounds cliche and kind of like modern and psychological but one's like sense of self and neptune passing over that and going through a period where where you don't have a lot of clarity surrounding that or you have a lot of questions and a lot of nebulousness surrounding who you are for her i i would think that that's going to have to do with questions surrounding what she believes and what her belief systems are and suddenly a, a much greater sense of um maybe not porousness but like ambiguity surrounding what her beliefs are and what she thinks about the world because the sun is in the ninth house or that sun jupiter conjunction is in the ninth house um but then also because the sun is ruling the 11th house of friends that somehow issues surrounding groups and uh, friends and social movements that she's a part of, and how those are tied into her belief systems. Um, that that's part of the underlying sort of complex that that natal or that that transiting Neptune square is activating is um, some questions and some nebulousness surrounding those those topics in her life. Absolutely, absolutely, and it is. I mean, I know it does feel like a cliche, but those words. <laughs> Those Neptune keywords or those Uranus keywords, they do exist for a reason. Uh, the ambiguity, the uncertainty, you know, that just sense of I'm not sure who I am anymore or I'm not sure what I believe and I'm not sure who my friends are or I'm not sure what my place is in, in this group or this organization or in this community. And it's, it, it, it is confusing. I mean, and I think one of, the, one of the phrases I often share with clients around Neptune transits, particularly to the sun, is it's about well, Neptune transit, I guess these are just Neptune keywords. It's about slowing down. You know, if you're driving on a foggy highway at late at night, which is the feeling of what being in the middle of a Neptune transit is like, you have to go a bit slower and you're trusting your instincts rather than reading the street signs because you can't actually see the street signs anymore. So it does draw you into more of an internal space. And it's it's just a bit sort of messy and fluid and it's not clear, but that's part of the process for the length of that, the timeline of that transit. Sure. Um, yeah. And I mean, I think ultimately it, it should be more positive because that's probably the more positive area of her chart, just having a day chart with that Sun-Jupiter conjunction there in the ninth whole sign house. And then speaking of that Saturn placement in the 11th, that's the other final major sort of quasi outer planet transit that she would have during the the quote unquote midlife crisis is her Saturn yeah. her second Saturn opposition which will start happening as soon as Saturn moves into Aquarius in what like 2020 Yeah, I think it's December 2020 just to keep all the uh conspiracy theorists happy. Uh yeah. Which well it's and we'll have the Jupiter Saturn conjunction. That's in, the story in for Aquarius. another time. In sure. Aquarius, yeah. So that's yeah, so it's December 2020. Okay. So that's another major one that will be coming up is the Saturn opposition and that tension between whatever that 11th house placement is in terms of what early in, earlier in her life Saturn in a day chart in the 11th often manifests as like difficulties or inhibitions or fears surrounding friends and groups and just the process of making friends or being in groups but then later on becomes um, a strength as she gets older, especially after the Saturn return, and something that she becomes more comfortable with. But there are still occasionally surmountable difficulties that come up within the context of that topic at different times in the life. Yeah, and I'm really glad you mentioned this transit, Chris, because I think it often gets overlooked as a midlife sort of thing. And I sort of feel like this, 
you know, the Saturn opposition that happens in the early 40s, it's it's like the middle of the middle cycle and it really does create this sort of pivoting or shift around a person's Saturn experience or the the nature of the Saturn story in their chart. And, you know, all the other sort of outer planet transits aside, I think this is really critical or fundamental to the creation of one's backbone or strength for the second half of life. So that's a really good one. Yeah, I'm glad we mentioned that. Definitely. And and that's one where, you know, if she was here, we would talk to her and we would ask her some questions about what her Saturn return was like uh, at the between, I guess it would have been between what, 2005 and 2007. Um, and because that would have set the stage for the next 30 years of Saturn then moving around her chart and especially reaching some critical turning points when it hits those hard aspects. So when Saturn transited through Scorpio a few years ago and, and made the square to its natal placement, and then whatever was initiated at the return back in the mid-2000s, reaching another critical turning point when Saturn goes through Aquarius and, and hits the opposition. So Yeah. And that's a really fun, useful thing to do with a client is to work back at those intervals. But And Saturn is probably the best cycle to do it with, um, but you can do it with, with Uranus or Neptune. Um, certainly you can do it with Uranus. But yeah, going back to those square points or those previous conjunctions, uh, just to pull pull the story forward. What happens when this planet makes a transiting aspect back to itself for you? And how do you want to kind of go forward with that insight? Right. Because I mean, that's one of the greatest keys. That I've always said this, especially about perfections and zodiac releasing, but it's also true of studying outer planet transits in general, that the 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 greatest key to prediction in astrology is studying a person's history and their past and figuring out what their past life trajectory is up to this point and how that meshes with their chart and then projecting that out in the future um, based on the transits and the other major alignments that you see coming up. Yes. Yeah. Well, and, that, and that, to borrow a term from the financial services industry, you know, the best indicator of future performance is past performance. So whatever's happened in the past, we're going to see coming forward. And because what what we do when we do this, as you're saying, Chris, is we're starting to build a, a narrative or a set of themes and topics that are specific to that planet in this chart. So it's like getting to know how this planet shows its qualities specific to the unique features or nuances in the chart at hand. And this is the beauty of working with astrology over time, whether people are doing it for themselves or you're working consistently with one astrologer over time is both of you really start to get to know how the chart responds and what tends to stir up certain topics or certain experiences. Right, definitely. And like and what specific, you know, like 11th house manifestation of that Saturn transit has been experienced in the past because then there's a greater likelihood of that being the direction it goes in the future. Um or yeah, or other placements like that. Like she has the ruler of the 11th house of friends and groups and the ninth house of like religion and beliefs and philosophy and foreign travel. And, you know, for her, that might work out one way. There was a, a chart that we looked at last night for um, a guy that was here named a cult fan, or that was his handle. And he had the ruler of the uh, 11th, I believe, and the ninth, or, or vice versa. And when I was sort of delineating that, like, you know, 11th house of like friends and groups and ninth house of, of religion and beliefs and philosophy. And he said that over the past few months, he had just become a, a Freemason. 
And so that was how he was manifesting that transit in in a unique or specific way. Whereas I've seen other other people who, you know, became involved in astrological groups, so a group of like minded people or like like minded friends who have a similar focus on a particular philosophy or outlook. Um, yeah. So so knowing which specific manifestation the person has has gone with in their life after you've identified the broad archetypal sort of direction that it should go in can then be useful for being able to make more specific statements about the future. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Cool. All right. Well, I think we've covered a lot then in terms of in terms of this. Do you, I mean do you want to make any final statements about this one or should we move on? I'm happy to move on. I think we've we've answered the questions there for sure. Okay, cool. I think the next one is from a listener named Eunice. Yep. So she says her her birth data is December 25th, 1995 in Santa Clara, California at 2.22 p.m. She has 25 Taurus rising. She says, um, her first question is, am I bound to have terrible friendships? Uh, My 11th house ruler is in the 8th house and my Saturn is in the 11th house. So she's talking about she has Taurus rising and Saturn is in Pisces in the 11th whole sign house, and it's ruled by Jupiter in Sagittarius in the 8th house. Um, she says, I struggle a lot with forming good friendships and keeping them. And then she has a secondary question, but that might be sort of separate or we'll hold that for now and maybe focus on the first one. Okay. So she has trouble forming friendships. So this is where I'm like, okay, what trouble do you have forming friendships? Is it that there's trouble meeting people or that there's an imbalance in who's sort of giving and participating within the friendship? Um, I'd, I'd be a little, I mean, they would be some of the questions that immediately come to mind. We do, there's two interesting things that I see right away. Yes, the ruler of the 11th is in the 8th. I'm not sure just that would make me say trouble with friendships. I think it could be that the nature of friendships are exploring eighth house topics could be one other possibility. Um, this reminds me of a chart because I, I have a, I, there's someone in the chart circle that I've got that I know that they had a lot of friends who passed away. And this chart actually has, doesn't have what that other person has in their chart, but because the rule of the 11th is in the eighth, maybe that would be something to discuss. Um, the moon what was is that? Up- Wait, she had a friend who. I I have someone. I know someone who has a lot of friends who've died. Okay. Um, and it's weird. Like every few years, one of this person's friends seems to have some sort of experience and dies. So I just yeah. checked their chart. The ruler of their eleventh is um, combust the sun, which is different from this. Yeah, I mean that's what's funny about this is I also have I think I used that as an example in my book. I had a client who had the ruler of the eleventh uh, in the eighth, but then it was like heavily heavily maltreated by like an applying conjunction within a degree to Mars in a day chart or something like that. So it was kind of like worst case scenario, and she only had one friend growing up, and that friend passed away when the two became adults, and then the person was not interested in forming any friendships at all in the future. Yeah, so I I think that I can see why there might be some worries, but I don't think just having the ruler in, of the eleventh in the eighth on its own would be enough to trigger that. We would need that maltreatment, I think, as well. Yeah, for the the worst case scenario. I mean, and that's what's funny and interesting about this is this is it's like the issues are are present with the eleventh house, primarily due to having Saturn in the eleventh whole sign house. 
but it's like the best possible scenarios otherwise in terms of that because it's a it's a day chart. So immediately one of the things I think we're looking at right here is the experience of of somebody who's a little bit younger. So she just recently completed her second Saturn square. So she hasn't reached her Saturn return oh, yet. So she's in her early 20s. Okay. Yeah, so she she was born in 1995. So people, you know, I make that distinction and I'm going to bring it up a lot today because it's a really core component to my astrology about sect and just that people with night charts tend to have more problems with Saturn and people with day charts tends to be more constructive, but when people are younger, that's not necessarily true or that's not necessarily how it's experienced to the extent that people with day charts still experience that Saturn placement as being pretty rough especially when they're young. And it's oftentimes not until they get older that eventually it becomes uh, like a source of strength or something that they get used to or something that they get over in some broader sense. So what we're hearing here, I think largely, or what I, where I would go with this, is we're hearing somebody that because they're a little bit younger, they haven't fully mastered or gotten a hand of that Saturn placement yet. And so they're dealing with some of the common themes that you might expect from Saturn in the 11th house, which is you know, Saturn tends to be more restrictive. It tends to say no to things. And if it's in an area like friendships, then sometimes it can say no to friends for whatever reason in some broad archetypal sense, whether it's due to, you know, internal fears on the part of the native. Sometimes where Saturn is placed in the chart from a psychological and a modern perspective, one of the things I've always appreciated about one of the modern approaches is the notion that Saturn indicates where a person has fears or apprehensions. So perhaps part of it is coming from the native themselves and that they have great fear and apprehension surrounding that part of their life. And that's part of the reason it doesn't go as well as it could. On the other hand, sometimes it can just be things that are outside of the person's control, like bad luck. Like, you know, you had a really good friend growing up, but they moved away and you never saw them again. Or you're just not in the right place at the right time, and therefore you have a hard time forming those bonds or or meeting up with people that are of like mind in a way that you fully click and that's not necessarily your fault it's just the way things played out so whatever that is i do think it's something that'll get better especially in this chart with time one because it's a day chart and two because jupiter ruling saturn and being placed in its own sign in a day chart and forming a superior square when it's where it's overcoming saturn is a condition of bonification, which is going to render Saturn much, much less malefic and much more constructive than it would be otherwise. And I think that'll become clear as this person gets older. Yeah, I think that's beautiful, Chris. And I th- I think the only little bits, the two little bits I would add, the Saturn placement definitely tends to improve over time. As long as Saturn is not, you know, maltreated or significantly dysfunctional or restricted. And this Saturn is not, it's just sitting in the 11th house. It is in a day chart. It's got the um, overcoming influence from Jupiter. It's just Saturn. I think you made a really good point about the fact that based on the age of this person, they're still figuring it out. And one of the things which I did get from more modern astrology, but I have seen bear out in practice, the house that Saturn sits in can be an area of life providing all other things being equal, it can be an area of life that just takes a little bit time, a little bit of time to warm up and for us to kind of get our groove on there. So that tends to be an area of life that gets more satisfying or more fulfilling as we get older. And the, the qualifications there, are of course, providing Saturn is not in, you know, it's not Saturn in a night chart or there's no other 
um, more difficult factors. Um, the other piece too, given this person's age, you know, we we talked about the Saturn Square. They just had a, a period of time late 2016 and then 2017 where transiting Saturn was making an exact degree base square to that natal Saturn, which is going to create some stronger than usual feelings of restriction, limitation, or lack around perhaps that 11th house Saturn, which would be temporary because they were tied to that transit. I think the topic of friendship is really important for this person because the moon applies to sextile to Jupiter. So there's that idea of the pushing light or the pushing energy of the moon. So I can see that the friendship is maybe important or a highlighted topic for them. And I think I, I think we both agree that as they get older, this is going to improve basically. So they're not, to answer their question, they're not destined to have no friendships or bad friendships, I guess, forever. Right. And, and that's also good because that the moon's applying sextile. So the moon is at 27 Aquarius in the 10th whole sign house and it's applying within a degree or so to a sextile with Jupiter uh, in the eighth. That's another one of those mitigating conditions. Cause so it's not just a planet in a challenging house being in a close aspect to the midheaven, but it can also be to a planet that's in an angular house like the 10th. Uh, if it, if it's a close aspect within three degrees can act as a major mitigating con- condition. So that's actually helping out Jupiter, that applying sextile to the moon is not just good for the moon, but it's also good for for Jupiter. Mm, Um, mm, Yes. Yeah. So the other thing, the last thing I would mention here is just one of the things that's going to be funny is I I would go ahead, I would venture to make a prediction about this chart that at some point when she's older, especially, it'll probably come about during the time of her Saturn return or or after her Saturn return, um, she's going to find at some point in her life that her career actually ends up being tied up with friends or groups or social movements because Saturn is the ruler of her 10th house. And so something that initially she struggled with or felt that she lacked or wasn't very good at, at earlier in her life with that Saturn placement in the 11th will at some point become an integral part of her career uh, with Saturn ruling the 10th house. And that'll end up probably looking really ironic to her sometime in retrospect um, and the last thing I would say is just a constructive suggestion about where potentially to go with that, because Saturn is also ruling the ninth whole sign house of you know religion and belief and foreign travel, that there's going to be some part of the ninth house component that she might want to look to in terms of looking to people with similar beliefs or a similar philosophical or religious outlook. And that might be a good area where you could gravitate towards in terms of looking for friends or trying to find people who you might connect with and actually build long-term relationships with, it's probably going to come from that that ninth house area since Saturn is ruling the ninth and it's placed in the 11th. Yes. Yeah. All right. So um, anything else about that one? I did just say something because <clears throat> this is what happens when you look at charts. Um, there is a little sextile from Mars to Saturn in the chart Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, and it is technically separating Mars looks like it's 1926 cap with Saturn at 19 Pisces. So I'm just wondering if, um, some of the challenges potentially could be the interference of Mars, given that Mars would be the out of sect malefic for this person. And then I think that again, because it's a separating aspect, 
it is something that can be worked with or overcome with time, but it, it looks like just a little bit more effort is required, but we can definitely get this part going. Right. That's a really good point. So Mars in the ninth house in a day chart is is also the area of some of the greatest difficulties um, surrounding uh, religious matters or belief or education or foreign matters. So on the one hand, while Saturn ruling that and importing that over into the 11th house might end up working out well, that's also an area where some other challenges are going to come through at the same time. So it's not necessarily super easy, but yeah, that sextile with with reception even though it's separating, I think would be helpful in mitigating that a little bit, especially the exaltation at the same time. Yeah, because it is a, a productive Mars. It's a Mars that we can use to do something with. Sure, sure. Yeah. All right, cool. Well, that was a good question. Thanks for, for submitting that. Um, so why don't we move on to the next one? Perfect. How are we doing on time? Where are we at at this point? I think we're about an hour in, so I feel like we're going at a nice pace. Good. Okay. Um, awesome. We're, yeah. We'll keep it up. And we've got 60 people watching us live. So that's awesome. And thanks for everybody that's participating in the chat. There's like a lively discussion about sect and questions about when it becomes a day chart or a night chart. And if there's like an intermediate phase between day and night. And if that's somebody suggested whether that creates like a third category. Um, a <laughs> listener named Arian suggested that as a, as a question for those issues where it's like right in between. So maybe that's something we could talk about later. All right. So let me pull up the next question. It's, I mean, it is a good question that because for people born right around sunrise or right around sunset, the distinction in the sky, nature is not clear between day and night. And sometimes it can be tricky to clearly determine the sect differentiation. Yeah. Yeah, and we were we we're going over this a little bit last night, and I think we have a question about it later because there are some of those charts where it's really close to the either the ascendant or descendant and just below the horizon, and you do have this question of whether it's still day or or whether it's night at that point. And um usually I've come up with a range where if it's like six degree up to six degrees below the ascendant in the morning, then potentially it could be a day chart, or I've seen charts that act like day charts in that instance. Whereas it tends to be a little bit tighter, the range tends to be tighter by the descendant. But usually I still find that it ends up being one way or the other rather than both or rather than somewhere in between. I mean, it would be interesting if you ever had a case where it was clearly acting as both, but I don't think I've ever actually seen that just to, to answer that question quickly. Cool. Yeah. So you the six degree... If the sun is six degrees into the uh, or off the ascendant in the on the first house side, you'd consider that a day chart, and then a smaller orb off the descendant. Yeah, like I've seen it up to like three degrees below the descendant. I'm still getting a feel a feel for that range because it's a lot more murky. Uh, but I've seen a few where it was just like a degree or two below the descendant, and it was still acting like a day chart where Saturn was still the more constructive malefic, and and Mars was still much more challenging. Yes. Because that's basically how you, you rectify it, and that's what you have to do with those charts where where there's any ambiguity in the sect is you've got to quickly, like in a consultation, uh, I would do like rapid fire questions to try to see which malefic they tend to respond more negatively to, and that's usually how you tell. Okay. Okay. 
Well, and that's, that's how you, and that's really how, if we're thinking about it from a consulting perspective is is sometimes you have to check in with the client to say, you know, and it's not, you're you're checking in, do you have Mars problems or Saturn problems, or do you have Jupiter help or Venus help? You don't ask the question like that. You've got to come up with some phrases specific to Mars or Saturn in the chart. Do you have problems with friends because you have Mars in the 11th, or do you have problems with money because you have Saturn in the second? And that can help clarify, I guess. Yeah, you've got to have a pretty specific idea of some specific scenarios for certain placements that you would expect. And then you've got to, like, you know, Saturn in the 11th in the chart we were just looking at and asking questions like, have you had problems with friends or forming friendships? But then you run into an issue where you've got to then gauge from a, a an objective standpoint as the astrologer whether that's been those are like um, surmountable difficulties that they've had in their life, but is not like worst case scenario, or if they've actually experienced some really great trauma or hardship in that area that probably justifies it being the the malefic being contrary to the sect or what have you. Totally. Yeah. So that can be challenging, but that's part of the the, the dialogue process that occurs. Okay. So let's go ahead and move on to the next. Yeah. Next chart. Next question. So. The next one comes from a patron named Marin, and she was born August 24th, 1998 at 5.27 p.m. in Houston, Texas. So she has 19 degrees of Capricorn rising, and her question is, she says, "Um, I have a pretty afflicted Mars, particularly with its square to Saturn. Uh, And let me make sure I'm sharing this properly. There we go. Perfect. Okay. She says, I have a pretty afflicted Mars, particularly with its square to Saturn. What kinds of advice would you give for this placement and aspect, specifically in terms of the areas of life it's tied into? So she has um, Capricorn rising. It's a day chart with the sun in Virgo in the ninth whole sign house in the top half of the chart. Uh, Natal Mars, the natal Mars placement that she's talking about is Mars at two degrees of Leo in the eighth whole sign house. And she's focused or she's asking in particular about the square from Saturn, which is located at three degrees of Taurus in the fifth whole sign house, uh, conjunct the degree of the IC. So hers is one of those charts where the degree of the meridian or the quadrant midheaven falls in the 11th whole sign house at six degrees of Scorpio. And so the IC falls at uh, six degrees of Taurus conjunct Saturn and squaring widely squaring Mars. So yeah, where would you go with that question or how would you approach this one? Yeah. So it's basically about the Mars problems, isn't it? Um, Pretty afflicted Mars. Okay. So So, so, I mean, first, do you accept the premise of the question? Let's say she says, (laughs) well, no, I mean, that's a, it's a genuine. It is um, a genuine question. Um, That's, that's, and actually that's a really good starting point. I'm not sure that I would consider it quite as seriously afflicted as she might be. Right, because um, really quickly, that's actually a really important thing that is, again, a common issue as, as, as we sometimes need to digress and talk about like meta issues in consultations that these questions bring up. One of them is people, astrologers, you know, typically a lot of us, a lot of times when you see clients, they sometimes will have some background knowledge in astrology, whatever that is, and therefore they're going to, they're going to approach, you know, asking questions, asking you questions about their chart with some presumptions about, what they do or do not have in their chart or what planet planetary placements are prominent or strong or weak or or what have you there's a lot of assumptions that a person can approach things with and 
unless you just like magically happen to have the exact same approach to astrology as your client, which 95% of the time, 90% of the time you're not, um, or maybe you would say 99% of the time you're not, (laughs) um, because every astrologer is is somewhat unique, uh, you know, there's going to be some things where you're going to disagree with some presumptions that they're making about their chart. And you might have to either sort of like set them right, or you might have to present a different perspective in some way and say, well, you know, I, I might not fully agree about that, but instead I would look at it like this. I'm so glad you brought this point up, Chris. I'm just like having a big smile on the inside and on the outside, because that's often when students come in or clients that have got a bit of a background in astrology, they, they can sometimes come in really worried about certain things or And you think, okay, I can see where you're coming from, but there's a few other pieces of information or insight that maybe you're you're not aware of. So in in this case, exactly, I'm like the the person, just the way the question is phrased, Marin seems to be super worried about this particular Mars. And I can see there are a couple of things. Yeah, we can talk about that maybe could be termed a little bit limiting, uh, but there are some other things that I think could be potentially productive. So- I, this is a really good meta point to make that you won't always agree on the other person's interpretation. And it's not about having an argument or, you know, pulling rank or, you know, it's not not about that. It's more just saying, you know, have you thought about these other things or there are a couple of other factors that are at play that might shift this a little bit, basically. Right. Definitely. Yeah. Because as far as, a, you know, afflicted Marses go, okay, this Mars is in the eighth house and it's square Saturn. Fair enough. There's there's some stuff there, but that's not. I mean, sometimes you look at a Mars or another planet and you think that planet is is locked up in prison. I'm not sure what that planet is going to be doing. That's not what this Mars is, basically. Um, in in the other side, one alternative viewpoint of this Mars, it rules the midheaven degree, and it is placed in such a way that it squares the midheaven. So we've got the ruler of the midheaven in a direct degree based aspect to the midheaven. And that adds a level of productiveness or functionality that if we can get some topics or some focus out of this Leo Mars in the eighth house, we can really apply them to move forward in one's career. We do have to deal with the square from Saturn. And so the pacing, one of the frustrations of a Mars in hard aspect to Saturn is that, you know, the Mars stuff or the Mars topics want to move forward faster or sometimes prematurely. And the Saturn component is saying, you know, we've got to take more time, we've got to do more preparation, or we've got to slow down. Uh, sometimes the way Mars Saturn can be configured, the Saturn does become a blocking factor. Sometimes it's just a like a, a shift in pace, if you like. Um, so that's kind of how I'd start with this, Chris. How would you dive in with this? Um, yeah, definitely. I agree with everything you just said. And I mean, one of the points I like that you made is that Mars is ruling the midheaven and it's closely configured to the midheaven within a few degrees. Uh, because one of the things that I notice oftentimes, especially when people are really concerned about a negative placement is sometimes, and I'm not necessarily saying that she's doing this, but sometimes people can overhype how negative the placement is. And sometimes they can not notice some of the mitigating factors or some of the positive things that it has going for it. And I appreciate that sometimes because then you can point that out um, when there are some some notable or semi-notable mitigating factors that indicate that it's not necessarily like the worst case scenario. So this is another one of those where we've got either an angle 
in this case, we have both, either an angle or an angular planet that's closely configured to a planet that's otherwise in a difficult house that is therefore helping to counteract some of the more difficult significations and pushing it in a more constructive direction than it would be otherwise. So Mercury being square to the midheaven is doing that, or Mars being square to the midheaven is doing that, um, even though it's in the eighth house. And then also in this chart, the moon is at three degrees of Libra, where it's separating from a close sextile uh, with Mars. And that's also helping it out in terms of that otherwise difficult placement in the eighth and is going to help to push it in a more constructive uh, direction than it might otherwise. So it's still the most challenging planet in the chart um, because it's Mars in a day chart in the eighth house. But I don't think that that Saturn square is necessarily hurting Mars necessarily as, as much as she might feel like it is. I mean, I, I understand. I think I would go with you in saying that that probably will oftentimes manifest or lead to feelings of, or sometimes literal situations of being held back or told to slow down or told um, no uh, when she's wanting to move in certain directions, especially directions that are tied in with either um, fourth house matters since Mars is ruling the fourth house of the the parents and the home and the living situation, or potentially 11th and 10th house matters since the MC is in Scorpio in the 11th whole sign house, and so Mars is ruling the place of friends and career. So there may be some instances where things take longer or she's blocked from moving as quickly or sometimes impetuously as she might like, but that uh you know because this is a day chart Saturn in some instances that might be more helpful and beneficial and constructive in the long term even if it feels subjectively uh very frustrating and burdensome in the short term yeah that's that i had that same thought too i'm i thought well theoretically or conceptually the saturn is actually maybe more useful or more productive in this chart so it's in mars's interest to take those cues from Saturn, even if they are frustrating in the immediate uh, kind of time frame. Uh, the only other thing that I thought, which sometimes I like to do when we do have a, a pretty dynamic aspect, is you know Mars rules the midheaven, for instance. So one of the topics associated with um, Mars would be career, and Saturn rules the ascendant. So Saturn sort of is her, if you like. It, it's her or her body or her. Uh, just her in general. And right. I thought, I wonder about the tension between her and what she's interested in or what she likes to do versus what some of the demands or requirements of her career might be and whether there's a little bit of frustration there around, you know, I want to do this, but my job requires me to do that. And I think that a level of that in a way that is not detrimental or destructive to her would be an appropriate manifestation of having the rule of the ascendant square the rule of the midheaven. Right, definitely. That's a really good point. Or, or the requirements also like there's a heavy, like fourth house component here that's either that's, pertaining yeah. to like the the home and living situation or the parents. And so, is it like the parents or family expectations or something like that that's causing mm -hmm. the tensions that are coming from Mars and Mars being in the eleventh house and being like like other people's money or financial ties that otherwise are creating um blockages or 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 sort of forcing her to go in a certain direction that creates internal tension with Saturn itself ruling the ascendant and therefore representing her and sort of the the direction that she otherwise might like to go. 
Totally. That's, and that's where I'm like that. And that's where in a client session would be lots of juicy things to talk about, you know, and that, you know, one of the possible manifestations of this could be your parents want you to do X in your career and they will pay for you to do that, but you actually want to do Y. And then the tension is, you know, how do you, how do you navigate that basically? Um, just, yeah, no, that's, yeah. And so this is the, and again, just like we got to in the earlier chart, this is like where we are at the launching off point where we'd want to then get some feedback from the client and that would help us refine further. Yeah. Like I would, we would ask, especially about like that Saturn placement in the fifth house and its conjunction with the IC. And if some of those topics surrounding parents and family uh, and other things like that have come up already at this point, I'd also want to ask about the the transit of Saturn through Scorpio at the Saturn opposition that would have happened a few years ago that would have activated both of those placements in the Saturn Mars square and what themes came up at that time because we would expect to see a continuation of those themes uh, starting in 2020 when Saturn goes into Aquarius and we have the the next Saturn square that squares that natal Saturn placement and opposes the Mars. Um, yeah, there's a, there's a lot of questions and things we would probably ask in order to again just get a sense for the the life trajectory with those placements so far because we can identify the general area of the life and some of the topics that should have uh, that it should be tied into but actually figuring out the specific manifestation in her chart in order to have more context is a sort of crucial factor absolutely and uh yeah there's a couple of, like the Pluto is going over this person's ascendant. Saturn is squaring their moon this year, 2018. So there's, you, you could certainly see with that maybe underlying frustration or tension that we're, yeah, there's a lot that you could keep talking about with this person. Definitely. Um, but it's not necessarily as afflicted necessarily as it, as it could be. And it's got some significant mitigations. So I wouldn't, you know, while it will still be a, a point of challenge occasionally and struggle, uh, I wouldn't necessarily worry about it too much. Yeah. And sometimes these Mars things, it's like an irritation. It's like a stone in your shoe and it's like, you've got to deal with it. Or you've maybe you slightly have to adjust your gait to accommodate the fact that this little thing is slightly rubbing, but you can still move forward regardless. Um, there are certain factors in charts where there, there will be, okay, you cannot go forward with this, but yeah, this is not one of those types of Mars placements. Right. And now that you mentioned that, actually, I'm now realizing and remembering like the impending transit that's coming up where Uranus is going to ingress. And this yes. is one of those instances where the Uranus ingress really does matter. Like we actually got a lot of questions. Totally. And we were talking about this before we started the recording where a lot of people were just like, what does the Uranus ingress mean to me? Uh, and you were saying, Kelly, it's because you know, oftentimes people assume that it's a big outer planet transit, so that's a big shift, and therefore it's going to mean something. But, but for in everyone, fact, right? But in fact, there are some charts where it's not going to hit a lot of stuff, and so it may it may not be anything major to write home about, or it may not be in the immediate future. Whereas there's other people where where it will start hitting like major parts of their chart really really soon. Yeah. And this, I mean, Uranus will station at like 230 something degrees in the middle of the year, which will be exactly square Marin's Mars. And Uranus will also trine her sun just for extra um, stuff. And and then it'll be 2019 where Uranus um, com- comes back into Taurus, re-squares the Mars and then conjuncts the Saturn. So 
that. And I guess we could say to Marin, if she's really like just whatever's coming through or, you know, the next 12 to 18 months are really going to bring this particular aspect to the surface for her with that Uranus trigger. Definitely. Um, and definitely some some unexpected changes in that area. Since it's hitting Saturn and Saturn's the ruler of the Ascendant, I mean, one of those primary primary ones and one of the, the keywords I was talking about last night for transits to the ruler of the Ascendant is um, changes in in the sense of self and that keyword. It's it's a modern keyword, but it's it's really still true even in a traditional context where the first house is the house of self and the seventh house is the house of the other. Mm. And it's interesting seeing the different ways that when the ruler of the ascendant gets hit by a major transit, especially an outer planet planet transit, that there can be changes and and transformations in terms of the person's sense of self and who they are sometimes in an internal sense of like like who am i and and why do i act the way that i do and what are my motivations in life but other times it can be much more literal to like my sense of self in terms of like what is my appearance or how do i look or how do i present myself to other people and uh what is my general direction in life and things like that yes yes and i uh yes the there's yeah. I mean, we could keep going for for hours, probably. <laughs> sure. So the last thing I would just say that that um, there'll probably be some changes, some unexpected changes in terms of the, the sense of self in the future that may cause some tensions in terms of that Mars square and whatever it is that that's importing from the fourth house or the 11th house that brings uh, or creates a set of tensions in the life between Saturn uh, and, and Mars. Absolutely. And I, I just realized, of course, uh, that because of the way Uranus's cycle works, you know, this conjunction of Uranus to Saturn, it's that once in a lifetime, most intense trigger when Uranus does make that conjunction to a planet. So the Mars-Saturn fabric is there, but it does feel like there's something special or significant around the choices and changes that come through, whether she choose them or whether she's responding to them that are helping her, as you're saying, like really discover something about herself that's integral to how she goes forward. Right. And that might be tied in with what you pointed out with the sun in the ninth house and something about her her beliefs or her studies. Um, it's obviously tied into the the financial axis because Saturn's also ruling the second house and Mars itself is placed in that eighth house. So we're getting like themes of like her money or or possessions or financial sense of self-worth versus in whatever ways that other people's financial matters are tied into her life. Um, yeah, those are all sort of coming into play with that Saturn, those that square basically. Totally. All right. Well, I think we- The magic of chart work. Right. I think we we went over that sufficiently um, or, or we've sort of gone as far as we can without talking to her directly, but hopefully we'll we'll hear back. And hopefully some of the people, if we did answer your questions, maybe you can post some, some uh, comments or some feedback in the comments section for this episode once I release it on the Astrology Podcast website. Uh, so hopefully it'll be up uh, by the end of this week or in a few days. All right. So let's take a look at the next question. So the next question was submitted by a listener named Jen, and she says, my question for you and Kelly is, what do you think my best and most challenging planet, my best and most challenging planet or placements are? Uh, What techniques would you use and how would you interpret it? What would you advise to overcome the challenges and enhance the positive sides? 
I'm most interested in how you both would interpret my cardinal T-square and my moon node placement. So um, this is her chart. She was born September 26, 1989 at 8.23 a.m. in Reading, Pennsylvania, and her ascendant is at 19 degrees of Libra. Um, I love charts like this where it's like pick from two massively dignified planets as to which one you want to be your best planet. Right. So you're, you're focusing in right away on uh, the Jupiter that's in Cancer in the 10th whole sign house in a day chart versus the Saturn that's on the other end of an opposition, which is at seven degrees of Capricorn in the fourth whole sign house. Yeah, it's uh, sometimes it feels a little bit like splitting hairs uh, when you've got two planets in either rulership or exaltation in angular houses. Uh, because both of them, according to theory, will be functional or operational. They're both serving the chart to a high level of their ability. And then sometimes this brings in the question around, is a planet exalted stronger than a planet in rulership or vice versa? Uh, and it, again, it, they both they are coming from slightly different places. Uh, they both have different things to offer. Uh, but they're both offering those things, if that makes sense. Um, so one of the things that I struggle with when I see charts like this is I wonder what purpose it serves to pick which is the better of the two when both potentially can be quite functional. And that's that's something that I always sort of sit with. Um, sometimes when I think, oh, do we want Jupiter or Saturn, you know, I – I have a massive bias towards Jupiter, probably like most people, but there is a level of an inflated quality to a planet exalted versus a planet in rulership. And sometimes the more substantive or solid or stable possibilities can come from the planet in rulership, all other things being equal, which isn't quite the case here because the planet in rulership, Saturn, is sitting there right next to Saturn, sorry, to Uranus and Neptune. So, I mean, for me, I'd be weighing up between Jupiter and Saturn. Chris, would you have a different thought or how would you approach that point? Sure. I would just say, I mean, if she's asking what is her best planet and what is her most challenging planet, um, again, it's just going to default partially to sect for me where her ascendant's at 19 Libra and her sun is at three degrees of Libra. So the sun, she was born shortly after sunrise, basically making it a day chart. And therefore, Jupiter, which also happens to be exalted in Cancer in the 10th whole sign house, would be the most benefic planet in her chart. Uh, that's true, both in terms of sect as well as in terms of just zodiacal strength and house placement, because Venus is not necessarily, at least classically, like amazingly placed, mm-hmm. being in Scorpio um, in a day chart in the second whole sign house conjunct uh, Pluto. Although it does have a major mitigating factor from that superior sign-based trine from Jupiter, which is actually very helpful. Whereas the most challenging planet for her would not be that Saturn down there in Capricorn in a day chart in the fourth whole sign house, but instead it would be that Mars placement, which is in Libra in the first house. And because it's in the first house, the first house planets, because the first is the place where um, the earth and the sky meet. Uh, traditionally in, in ancient astrology, it had to do with the meeting place between the sort of spirit of the individual uh, as well as the the body of the individual. And as a result of that, the first house always had this dual meaning of both 
the person's like mind and their character and their spirit, but also their their body and their physical incarnation at the same time. So having Mars in the first house typically means that either there's in a day chart is typically going to mean there's some Martian type issues that come up either with respect to the mind and the character or with respect to the body and the physical constitution. Oh, totally. I completely agree. Mars is clearly the most problematic planet. Um, So Chris, your determination of picking the best planet in the chart is just to go with the insect benefic, um, basically. Yeah, like for all intents and purposes and barring other major extreme mitigating factors, sect is automatically typically going to indicate that pretty well that generally speaking it's it's normally true unless there's major, major contrary indications that Jupiter is going to be the most positive planet in day charts and Venus is going to be the most positive planet in night charts and then for the malefics Mars is going to be the most difficult planet in day charts and Saturn's going to be the most difficult planet in night charts. In the night charts. Yeah, because we had a few questions on this. And I think part of the question is coming from the fact that in a scoring system, when you're adding up dignities, you know, according to various methods, Mm -hmm. uh, Saturn actually comes up with a higher number in this chart of dignity factors, even though to like, to my best guess, I'm like, I would pick Jupiter over Saturn in a heartbeat. Um, and it is a day chart. Of course, Jupiter is exalted. So I think that's a point of clarification potentially for our listeners that the sect factor will be an override for a dignity count if that's how people are calculating, you know, best or or strength according to that method. Yeah. And I think, I mean, one of the things I would say to that, because that that sort of dignity method or that counting up comes more from the late later medieval and from the the Renaissance traditions where they Tended to move more towards a focus of zodiacal strength and um, and point scores under the premise that you could assign everything like a point and then you can like tally it up and and you'll come up with a number and one of them will be higher and one lower. But I think by the time they started doing that, the concept of sect had been uh, not lost, but it had started to be misunderstood to the point where I don't think it was being applied properly and therefore there was a mistaken assumption that it wasn't as useful as it actually is. So sect is like a huge, hugely useful um, tool for figuring out not just strength of the planet, because it doesn't tell you how strong the planet is necessarily, which is more about its zodiacal strength, but instead sect is much more qualitative in terms of telling you which planet is going to manifest the more positive end of its significations versus which planet is going to manifest its more the more negative end of its of its significations. And if we're talking about like best and worst in a qualitative sense, then that's definitely the reason why I would default to focusing on sect. Okay, cool. Yeah. And I think one of the things with the the point system is I've always understood it to be a bit of a guide that it can sort of help you qualify things as you're pulling it together, but you Mm -hmm. don't really want to use the point system necessarily as an absolute because it is only focusing on some factors. It's not taking into consideration things like aspect or other mitigations potentially. Um, And so maybe that's something for listeners who are really stuck on the, you know, how do I pick between two based on, you know, different things that could be something for them to keep in mind. Right. Definitely. Yeah. And then was there a part of this question um, from Jen around which topics um, are kind of maybe connected or affected by the best planet, worst planet in her chart? 
because I could definitely say something on the worst planet topics. Uh, yeah, go ahead. Uh, did she did she ask that or no? Well, she asked basically, um, what do you think Sorry. the most challenging and positive placement is? What techniques would you use? And how would you interpret it, which we've just gone over? And then what would you advise to overcome the challenges and enhance the positive? Okay. Um, that's basically it. So she's partially asking like, what area would it manifest and therefore what way would you use in order to mitigate any potential issues? Okay. So with the Mars, which from the sect perspective is the out of sect malefic, so it's difficult. Um, I would also consider the fact that Mars is combust the sun as a difficult, mm. like it. So then we're weighing testimonies or we're adding up the factors. This Mars has got a couple of things limiting it. This is probably one of the trickier Marses that we've seen today compared to some of the other Mars questions that we've had. Right. Uh, and Mars rules the seventh house where we have Aries and the second house where we have Scorpio. So the topics that Mars is responsible for or watching over relationships and money, particularly to do with income, one's saving or spending habits, they to me would be the areas where I might be having a bit of a conversation around, you know, are you satisfied, dissatisfied? These look like areas of your chart where there are perhaps some struggle or there are some difficulties. Maybe it's taken you a while to figure these parts of your chart out, or you've got a bit of an issue specific to second house or seventh house. And one thing I'm often saying when the planet is combust is that hidden feature that things are you know, you're not always seeing things clearly or you might be overlooking factors. And so we would have a bit of a discussion around that. Um, I know, I think in Ben Dykes' book, he talks a little bit about uh, like a planet, and I, I don't want to sort of put words in his mouth, but the word I often get for from Ben to do with a planet that's a bit tricky is this idea of something that's destabilizing. And so, you know, it might be tricky to build up a steady flow around money or it might require a bit more effort to try and get some stability or continuity in the realm of relationships. Yeah, definitely. I, I think I would focus in on that as well. And that becomes a really tricky one for me sometimes when interpreting a planet like Mars or, or a malefic in the first house when it's the most difficult planet, when it's ruling something like the seventh house, because sometimes that doesn't end up at all being about something that the native themselves is doing, but instead it be, it's something about the the people that are coming into their life and sometimes the relationships they have that sometimes um, end up being detrimental or importing something that's challenging into the person's life that affects them in a, in a direct or in a tangible way, and so that might be one of the sort of pieces of advice. Like if we were if we were going to like go out on a limb and try to give like specific delineations of specific possible scenarios that could come from that, it would be and, and things you could do to help mitigate or avoid it, which would just be, you know, be careful about the types of relationships that you get into and that they are playing a positive influence on your life, um, especially in terms of your own personal finances and possessions and making sure that that somehow your association or relationships with specific people aren't having a negative effect on you either in terms of your body or your um, spirit, uh, as well as your finances, second house. Yeah, that's beautiful. Uh, that is, yeah. And it's it's funny because I, I start to think about, oh, that reminds me of this client where, you know, when you were saying, is it the person themselves or the people they draw into their life with relationships because the ruler of the seventh is in a bit of a tricky condition? 
Right. Um, it may, so that one of two things I've seen happen, either the relationships has been a bit of an unfulfilling or dissatisfying part of the life because they've attracted maybe difficult partners or they've just had some Mars difficulties. They've had maybe some friction or tension in the realm of relationships. The other way I've seen it manifest is that they have drawn in a partner. They've got a relationship that is 80% great. And the other 20% is this massive problem that the person has to deal with only because of their partner's circumstances, basically. Um, So, and the specifics of that can, can vary widely, but that's the other way this can manifest is that there may be a very sort of intense problem um, that is in this person's life because of like a weakness or a shortcoming of a partner that they're involved with. Right. And one of the things that's additionally tricky about this is that because it's under the beams, because Mars is in such close proximity to the sun, one of the ways that that was interpreted uh, in Hellenistic astrology was that there was something about the significations of that placement that are, are hidden or not able to be readily seen. So like Rhetorius delineates when the the ruler of the planet that signifies marriage in the chart is under the beams, it means that the person will be married in secret or will have a secret relationship. So this is one of those instances where where it might be tricky even trying to have a dialogue about this placement because some of the things that it's importing into the life may not be immediately evident even to the native themselves. A hundred percent. And that makes me think of Princess Diana's chart where the ruler of the seventh is Mercury, which is under the beams. It's a little further from the sun than this one, but it is still actually it's still technically combust, I think. And her, and I'm not saying that this that Diana's example exists for this client, but I'm just saying Diana has this similar thing. Uh, and she married a prince who was in love with somebody else. So within the context of her marriage, there were a number of secrets or hidden factors that only came to light after the fact. And I think that that piece about the hidden or the not seeing, it it is a tricky one to talk about with clients, but it can be helpful to draw attention to that. Um, Because sometimes a client with this type of configuration can wonder, I'm not saying that this client wonders this, but sometimes clients can be like, I just feel like I'm missing something, or I always seem to pick the wrong people or what have you. And then we can, we can talk a little further around that from this, from that configuration. Right. Definitely. Okay. Well, I think that's, that's a pretty good sort of approach of how we would approach that question. The last thing I would just say is that this chart also has a major mitigation in terms of talking about the overall T-square. I think you have the better end of this T-square because Jupiter is in Cancer in the superior position because it's earlier in zodiacal order and it's it's more elevated in the chart over Mars. So yeah. Jupiter in that instance, that's actually a condition of bonification where Jupiter is actually forcing Mars to be more positive or more moderate in its significations than it would be otherwise. So this isn't even a, a chart where we would expect the extreme end of the, the negative significations that could come from some of those placements we were talking about, but instead there will be they'll be either severely moderated or they'll be like um, a positive resolution, even when negative situations come up with respect to that placement in the life. Yeah. I'm glad you mentioned that, Chris. And I think that's that that holds the potential in the context of this chart for a more positive outcome at some point. Sure. Sure. All right. Great. Well, um, so we're getting towards the end of our time here. I noticed that one of our 
people who who showed up earlier actually came into the room. So so Marin is actually here, and I was thinking either we could. I think I know who this is. Yes. Okay. I mean, I, I was going to ask. I'm not sure. I- so if she's still listening, if she wanted to join us, she could, and maybe we could get some feedback from like one listener from that chart and some of the things we were saying earlier, or uh, otherwise we could maybe just move on and do one more question before we yeah, wrap things up. Yeah, if she'll come in, yeah, definitely pull her in. When we were looking at the chart, I thought that chart looked a little familiar. So Okay. So she says that she is interested, so let me give her the link and we're, we'll invite her on. So maybe I should pull up the chart so we can refresh it really quick since that was a couple of charts ago. Yes. I think it's the Mars Saturn Capricorn rising. Right. Okay. So this is the chart with uh, Capricorn rising, Saturn ruling the ascendant, placed at three degrees of Taurus and the fifth whole sign house conjunct the IC and then it's squaring Mars at two Leo. And her main question was just about that Mars Saturn square. Cool. Okay, so there she is. So let me promote her to a panelist. So yeah, I mean, in the future, ideally, maybe we'd have more people who would join us live like this. Hey, how's it going, Marin? Hey. All right, awesome. So did you were you here for that whole discussion, or did you join it late? Um, I think I joined it when you started talking. I tried to like find where it started. Um, I so I think I heard. Oh, she just got muted. For some reason, it was muted for a second. No, we, we still lost you. Um, the tech stuff is always the trickiest part. Oh, there we go. Now we can hear again. Um, yeah, I didn't really have the uh, specific like parent interfering with um, career manifestation like at all, really. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Sure. So one of the questions, it's like we had a general question about how the Saturn placement in the in Taurus in the fourth whole sign house, uh, conjunct the IC has played out so far. And then secondarily also to sort of get further clarification on that, if it's not clear how it's played out so far, how the early phases of Saturn and Scorpio went for you when you were going through your Saturn opposition and Saturn was conjoining your MC. So, so what time frame was, would that be Kelly? Like 2012, 2013? Correct. Late 2012, first half of 2013. Okay. Um, I would have, so there would have been a, not my parents' divorce specifically, but a divorce in the family that did happen then. So that would make sense just because there was like a, uh, like a slight just change in like arrangement, I guess. Okay. Yeah, that's what we think. Yeah, that would have begun around that time and then culminated in like 2015, um, I believe. Um, but yeah, that would have happened around that time. Okay. And I mean, in terms of, so you asked about the Mars Saturn square in particular and how we would interpret that in terms of being afflicted or being uh, the more challenging placement. I mean, how has that worked out for you so far or or what have your issues been in terms of that square? So um, given I, I was essentially told like a few years ago by an astrologer that it was like majorly problematic which made me worried about it but then now I'm seeing that yeah it could be mitigated because I've been kind of waiting for it to show up in a problematic way but it hasn't exactly yet Mm -hmm. but I would say like maybe physical frustration like inability to um like flexibility wise perhaps um in terms of like I want to 
pursue a career in like yoga instructor training, but there's some issues just regarding like my own, like ability in that sense. Um, for like, I'm not sure if that would be the manifestation. Cause when you said career, I thought, okay, maybe that's the way it's connecting in. Um, um, yeah, I mean, what do you mean? So wanting to pursue something, but not necessarily being able to due to physical limitations or like aptitude. Is that what you mean? Right. Like just, um, like extremely intense, like muscles for no apparent reason that are just impossible to like work through that have like physical therapy and things like that. Um, okay. Yeah. That's a, that's a pretty good Mars Saturn sort of manifestation. I think. What, what do you think, Kelly? Yeah, totally. I could, I could see that it's almost like the Mars, the, the square is then about Mars somehow interfering with the physical form. And that is why it's so interesting to have the feedback from you, Marin. And it does then make me think, you know, about, um, I was just talking about this with a client yesterday. Mars can often be like a poison. Um, so, it, and I'm not saying that you're poisoning and you're going to die or anything, but there may be something that you're using as a supplement or a beauty product of some kind or something environmental that is, that is contributing to this. And so there may be a supplement that you could take or stop taking. You might have to go on a bit of a discovery process to try and figure that out. Um, there is a, a level of maybe a little bit of rigidity with the Saturn in the fixed sign being aspected by this Mars in a fixed sign, uh, which is probably why you come to something like yoga anyway, I guess, to improve the flexibility. Right. Uh, no, that I'll try to look into that, what I could be using that could or not using that could, um, be involved with that. Cause that's interesting as uh, I never thought about that in that sense. Yeah. How long has that been a topic or an issue that you've been having where you've been wanting to move in that direction, but have been running into setbacks? Um, I'd say as about 10 years ago. So I was planning on being an actor for most of my life. And that was constantly an issue is that I like was, uh, physically tense. And when that didn't apply for roles, it was like problematic um, so essentially my whole life and then, or not my whole life, I guess, from the age of around, um, seven to eight, it, it became like noticeable, which is strange because it's not exactly an age when you would have like, um, you'd be, have the physical, you'd have the consequences for some like an extreme physical activity, which is kind of always present. Mm-hmm. And then once I decided to not pursue that anymore, but I still had other like, in fitness outlets and things like that, something I've always been inter- interested in. I just would notice that maybe I should move towards something um, that would solve that, such as yoga, because it was just strange uh, because I did gymnastics at an early age and it was constantly an issue. So it's almost like I brought it about from like this inherent past I didn't have. Sure. I mean, seven to eight would have been your first opening Saturn square. That would have been like 2005 through 2007, Saturn would have been going through Leo, so it would have been squaring that natal placement and conjoining Mars. When so, and then you started doing yoga, like when you, you said you were t- ten years ago. Um, yeah, oh. around then I started getting like interested in it, um, and then it became a possible profession about a year ago, um, and that's something I'll actually be like formally training while uh, Uranus is squaring my mars on my saturn so maybe that's the physical change i'm been wondering if that's signifying like a physical injury of some sort just because of the houses involved in like the first house um but like i was sure. really worried but i think it might not be as bad as i'm expecting 
Yeah, I mean, um, you know, since December, Saturn went into Capricorn, so it moved into your first house. So certainly that would um, pertain to more of like a long-term period of two or three years where there could be some changes physically, but sometimes that can just be um, in terms of a person's like health and fitness sort of regimen and routine and getting more structured about certain things like that or like the heart. I've seen people that, that become more focused on their physical body and just training and doing things that are hard in order to push their limits and, and get to new levels in terms of that? That definitely applies just because um, in about that time period that Saturn did move into my first house, um, fitness and exercise did become even a more prominent role. Okay. Well, that's something then that we would probably expect to see build up um, as it gets closer to your ascendant eventually. Uh, but again, since it's a, it's a day chart, it's like that Saturn transit itself isn't going to be the major deal breaker or major sort of hardships for you, but instead it's just the sort of putting in hard work in order to achieve new levels or new heights or to overcome obstacles and boundaries. And then eventually there'll be a continuation of that when Saturn goes into Aquarius because then it'll square its natal position. So you'll get a continuation of some first house themes. Um, a quick comment on the health, since we are really in the realm for this Mars Saturn for you, Marin, in the body. Um, there's a lot of dryness here, Capricorn ascendant, Saturn in an earth sign squared by Mars. Um, and dryness it can be associated with things that are stiff or brittle. And so I think I can see the remediation with yoga, for instance, but I'm also wondering about some remediations perhaps through diet or lifestyle with things like making sure you're getting enough essential fatty acids, enough oils. Um, and then from a lifestyle perspective, things like um, saunas or bathing, which is going to bring a lot of moisture in. Um, and then I get, I do think about supplements, things like magnesium and B vitamins, which can contribute to musculature, if you like. Um, and then lifestyle, the other thing would be music that is of a very wet nature. So this would be music that is probably like spa type music, which is not always, I know, like pleasant to listen to. There's some classical music that, um, you know, has more of a wet feeling. It's very flowy. It's got soft instruments, that type of thing, just to try and bring a bit of softness in. Um, if you're looking to, to take off that sort of sharp edge of this, if you like. That's funny that you say that because I recently um, like got into 528 hertz music and like four things that I've been told apparently like help productivity. So it's funny that you said that. But besides that, I'll, um, I'll take into account the suggestions because, yeah, I just I don't want to be tense. So that probably would help. Totally. Yeah, definitely. And, and I would just look back also and research your history of that time when Saturn was going through Scorpio because – if some of the things you mentioned between the ages of seven and eight happened, and that's one of the times that it first manifested, then there probably would have been some additional development during that Saturn and Scorpio transit. And that will probably give you a lot of insight into what Saturn going through Aquarius is going to be like once it hits that next square. Yeah. All right. Super um, interesting. And nothing on the money side, Marin, because that was another topic that we had come up. Okay. Yeah, the... I guess the outside forces that maybe could be indicated like parents or money that hasn't really influenced, um, the Mars Saturn, I, or at least maybe it just hasn't manifested yet. And it, and it will in the future or something. Um, because that, uh, I haven't necessarily been, 
like severely held back in a frustrating way in that sense. Have you had support? Because I, I wondered a little bit about Saturn on the IC. Some, and because Saturn in Taurus, I see some some people get really positive support from their family to do with finances. Um, has that been the case for you? or? Yeah, I would say that that uh, definitely is a more positive uh, than negative aspect. Yeah. So even though the Mars is there sort of tricky, the Saturn is still bringing you what it, what it has to offer, basically. Yeah. That's really okay. cool. Yeah, and that'll be one of the interesting things, I guess, just in terms of the eighth house placements, because the two, I mean, financial matters is the main one that Kelly and I have been focused on. Well, we focused on that partially. You were just talking about finances because of Saturn ruling, not just the ascendant, but also the second house, but even Mars in the eighth house and somehow relating to other people's money in the long term would be a pretty typical manifestation of that placement. So it'll be interesting to see, I don't know, as you as you get older or, or have different life experiences, like in what way that does come up, um, not just with the Mars placement, but also having Mercury and, and Venus there as well. So that that's kind of like a important cluster in your chart. Right. Because I, I know that eighth house can signify other people's money and I've never had any interest in finance or anything. So yeah, again, I'm just kind of waiting to see what that ends up being because it's definitely not money related. I, I can't do numbers. So yeah. Sure. Yeah. Go ahead, Kelly. I was just going to say, yeah, it, it, one of the topics of the eighth is other people's money. Um, I don't think necessarily for you that you would have to work in other people's money, for instance, but it may talk about a financial situation that's a bit unique around a partner that you might have. So um, that could be a component of it. The other thing that I sometimes see when the ruler of the midheaven or the 10th is in the eighth and you actually have both as I'm looking at it now the ruler of the tenth is Venus and she's in the eighth rule of the midheaven is Mars and she he's in the eighth um it's that desire to kind of work in a therapeutic or healing way to kind of go into the eighth house space of maybe some anxiety or stress or you know that psychological space if you like which I've now come to understand the psychology association of the eighth house is sort of just a modern spin on what was actually a very old concept that some of our worries or our paranoias kind of reside in the eighth house. And it may be that in the future, wanting to work in a way that helps people deal with that. Um, you could do it therapeutically as a therapist of some kind, but you know there are many body therapists, for instance, people who work with yoga or the body, who are working with emotional trauma as it's held in the physical being. So there, there's some other ways we could get the eighth house into the, the midheaven or the tenth house, if you like without you having to work with finance. Right. That, um, that has like been an interest just uh, helping professions. So that now makes sense how that could play out. Cool. Awesome. All right. And yeah, I think if this was like a full consultation, we were talking about career and things like that, I would want to pull up like your zodiac releasing periods and, and do a whole workup in terms of when the peak periods take place and other things like that. Um, I, in your course, I just finished like that part of the thing. So I actually have my like natal transit tracker thing pulled up, but. Okay. Uh, yeah, I was trying to do it in my head and it's like you, what your spirit is in Sagittarius. So you started out in a 12 year Sag period. Yeah. I, right now I'm in a Capricorn period, uh, and a Gemini level two. So nothing major right now. Sure. So you're in the the, the preparatory or the buildup phase or cha- chapter that eventually builds up and peaks or sort of culminates when you hit a 30 year peak period. 
Uh, when is that? Uh, 2037. So I kind of have a while, but yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, there'll be. Yeah. Sorry, Chris, you go. No, what were you going to say? I was just going to say you're, you're relatively early in your life and your career. So I know 2037 sounds like a really long way. Um, but you'll, you'll just be in your late thirties then I think. Right. I actually had a question about, uh, Zodiac or releasing just a personal one. If I have both, so I have fortune in a fixed sign and I have both malefics and fixed signs as well. So are all my periods going to be the most objectively difficult? Is that just something like kind of to be expected or, um, does that imply that maybe they will not be as difficult as they would be because they're peak periods? Um, it means that you'll hit the high points and the most active periods of your career will probably take place during the fixed signs, but also some of your greatest challenges will probably already also arise at those times. That doesn't necessarily mean that the entirety of the peak period is experienced negatively or that um, you know it's just like bad times the entire time, but it just means that you'll also run into some um, challenges and setbacks during that time although you'll still be hitting the high high points of your career. So for some people, that doesn't necessarily matter, or there's sometimes something about the person's career that, that, that incorporates that in some way so that it's sort of like productive or um, characteristic of their career, uh, but not necessarily in a, in a terrible way. Yeah, so it, it's not necessarily um, coinciding. It just could be either or a combination. Yeah, it, I mean, it, usually it'll focus in on the specific subperiods and when each of those placements gets activated during the course of it. Just like right now, even though you're in a 27-year Capricorn period that's building up, there's going to be different peak periods and high points and low points during the course of that on the sublevels on level two and three, uh, and that's going to be showing periods of shorter duration of like high points or um, successes during different phases of your career even as it's building up towards something. So there'll be similar themes or similar things in terms of certain periods that'll be the focal point, even once you hit the career peak for 30 years um, and some like high points and low points within the course of that. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Awesome. Well, thanks for joining us on on the camera randomly today for this, this experiment. So this is the first time we've, we've done this and uh, yeah, it went pretty well. So, so thanks for for joining us really quickly. Yeah, thank you. Great to see you, Marin. Yeah, you too. All right. Well, um, I guess we will probably wrap wrap up now. Um, so let me stop sharing the chart. Um, yes. All right. <laughs> Take Marin off the spotlight. That was great. So yeah. glad she could join us. Yeah, that was good. It's also um, good, but also it's one of the comments I think um, I've heard made recently, and I've made it myself, which is sometimes I've heard astrologers like express, I heard Lisa mention this recently, where she was like, I really like, sometimes it's so much easier to talk to somebody who is in their 60s or 70s or 80s, because they've already done so much of their life, and so much of their chart has already played out in very specific ways. And the consultation is sometimes just about talking about them, about things that they already know and showing how it showed up in their chart when they were doing all those major things that became characteristic things in their life. Whereas when you're talking with somebody younger, sometimes it's more about trying to get a sense for major themes that haven't even come up yet or haven't have yet to to arise. Totally. And there is 
actually it's something I really enjoy about working with clients in their twenties. It's, and that's where the timing stuff comes in is there's a lot of possibilities here. And we're going to do some of these things earlier in life. We're going to do some of these things in the middle part and some of these things later. And you get that extra sort of, I, I like the challenge of it is sort of which part are we going to be doing first or now? And, uh, and then working forward from there because a younger person is still growing into their chart, if you like. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, yeah, I don't know. Obviously I yeah. really like client chart work. I mean, there's certainly a greater sense of like optimism in terms of wanting to encourage people to make the most of whatever placements they have that you're talking about and to mitigate or, or try to to push things in a more constructive or positive fashion versus talking to somebody where major chapters of their life are already a done deal and that's like in the past and not something you can change. Mm. Um, but at the same time, it's it's um, challenging sometimes like, you know, some of the the cliche like thing experiences that I've had in the past about saying, giving a delineation for somebody and saying that you have the ruler of this house and this house. And so these two topics in your life are probably connected and the person not necessarily resonating with that or not that not being a major theme in their life. But then years later, it sort of arises as a major theme in a very literal way. And it becomes clear how that placement manifested in their life. Um, mm. Yeah. Sometimes though, I guess that's the only sort of downside or drawback sometimes in that working with, with younger people. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, it's different just depending on where people are for sure. For sure, and yeah, it's it's it is a you. I find I've got to really think. Oh yeah, they probably not haven't experienced this yet, but this is how the chart is put together. So we we want to hold space that this can come forward or is likely to come forward, and then it, you know if we can get into oh yeah, it looks like you're in your mid thirties or your your early forties, something around how these two topics connects. That's when we start to see that potential. Right. So this actually brings up the maybe the final talking point to wrap this up as a meta question. This came up when I did a, a last month at the beginning of April, the first episode of April with uh, Eugenia and mm. Adam Summer. And we talked about this issue that sometimes comes up. And I've heard it come up, I've heard it said by different astrologers. So for example, when I knew Robert Zoller like 10 years ago when I lived at Project Hindsight, he made this statement that always sounded really extreme to me at the time, and I always had some issues with it, that the astrology is always right. And he he would go so far as to say that if if you, you, you make a statement or an interpretation or a delineation uh, that – and the client says that, the, that you're wrong, he, he would say that like either they're lying to you or they uh, don't know it yet. And I, and I don't know that that's necessarily true. It's like Adam and Eugenia and I were talking about that, and they were sort of pushing that side where sometimes the astrologer is right, but you don't know you don't know it, or the, the person isn't comfortable admitting it, or it hasn't happened yet in their life, or all of the other various scenarios where the astrology or the astrologer could still be true, but it's not immediately evident. Versus the other one, which is you know, what if you're just saying something that's completely off the mark or that's not connecting or it's not a correct delineation and sometimes figuring out which it is between the two? Yeah. And I think I've got to bring my Saturn in Virgo into this piece about astrology is always right, but the mm-hmm. astrologer can make mistakes. Sure. So the astrologer's ability to interpret what they're seeing, not necessarily hitting the mark or not perhaps emphasizing or or picking the correct 
correct delineations for the configurations that they're looking at. Exactly. That the the astrology can be right. I mean, I, I do struggle a little bit with that word, but I understand the premise and I, I agree with the premise of what Zola has said here that astrology, it, it has always, you know, and that I tell my students is the astrology is right. And if you're not hitting with a client, that's usually a clue that you don't fully understand the thing in the chart that you're talking about, or there is a nuance or a variation of that particular thing that you just haven't learned yet, basically. And uh, so I always think the chart is giving us what's there and the astrologer's job, I mean, we're working hard. We've got to interpret and we've got to interpret in a way that is that makes sense for the client or that the client can connect to. In the same way, when we just spoke with Marin, some of the things we were talking about were the money side of it. And for her, that had been more of a positive uh, manifestation, I think, or just hadn't been such a big thing. And so we have to then go deeper into our interpretation of what we're talking about. Um, and, and I know with Marin, she's a little younger, so it may be that down the track, something will come out. And so I, that's part of the challenge of working with astrology is we're looking to connect with the client today to share something that's relevant for what they're dealing with, but also to give them insights around what to expect as to how certain things in their chart might shift through the course of their life. And so that's, it's a, it's a militant sounding statement when you first hear it, that astrology is always right, but I, I agree with it. Sure. Yeah. And I, and I guess I agree with it. It's just that astrologer component that makes me a little iffy because I don't want astrologers to become overconfident in like saying that what I'm well, saying has to be right exactly. in some way. Uh, because you, you know, you also have to be able to um, analyze when you've said something wrong or when something isn't correct and therefore learn from that mistake and, and get better as a result of it. Well, um, and that's the whole point that the astrology can be right, but the astrologer is, is not, the astrologer is fallible. We, we can and will make mistakes. We will not always get everything right. And I think we do, I agree completely, Chris. We have to be humble in that, that we're offering our best interpretation of this chart at this point in time. And that's where the dialogue can be helpful because that can take us into a deeper ability to interpret what's there, I guess. Is that? We, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, so that, that's that been one of the challenging things for me over the past 10 years in learning traditional astrology is this idea that sometimes there's certain chart placements that might indicate a one-time event in a person's life, like a major mm-hmm. event that in retrospect becomes characteristic or that you could look back in a biography and see like a chapter about that thing that happened in their life, but that sometimes certain placements are not necessarily things that are always activated for the entirety of the life or that are always evident as themes. So sometimes there are like continuing themes. Like I was trying mm-hmm. to, and, and we were trying to zoom in on like the Saturn cycle that Marin had gone through and like the square and the opposition in order to get, get a sense for the development of that placement in the chart as a dynamic process. And sometimes mm-hmm. you can you can do that with things like the Saturn cycle, but other times certain placements and certain combinations are like one time events in a person's life that may or may not have happened yet. Um, yes. So, like I was thinking of like like Steve in Steven Spielberg's chart, he had a specific combination where I think he had like the ruler of the seventh and the second, and he had that that sometime later in his life activated yes. by both perfection and and. Um, transit, and he ended up having a major 
highly publicized divorce, which at the time it was like the most um, costly Hollywood divorce ever um, because of some specific set of circumstances. Like they, they did a prenuptial agreement on like a napkin or something like that. And the judge was like, what, what is this? And, and threw it out. And <laughs> yeah, of, of course, yeah. right. So it was like a hundred million dollars or something like that it was half of whatever his fortune was at the time. So that was just like a one-time event for him, but it was a very specific placement that was built into his birth chart. But I could imagine that if an astrologer made a statement to that effect, even very generally speaking, earlier in his life, um, it would have been hard to connect with that delineation. And that's one of the challenges that I run into as an astrologer sometimes doing traditional astrology and more predictive or, or event-oriented astrology, which is when to make a statement and expect that it's going to be something that the person is going to connect with and recognize immediately versus when to make a statement as a, as an open-ended prediction that may still manifest at some point in the future in the person's life. Absolutely. And it's it's a walking a fine line. I think in the Spielberg case, like the ruler of the seventh is in the second, and I think it's the out-of-sect malefic maybe. Um and you, I mean, there could be a, a lifelong relevant statement to the effect that, you know, being a little bit cautious around financial dealings within the context of relationships as sort of just something ongoing to be mindful of or to try and put some protections in place around. And then I think what the timing techniques then they show when you might get the most extreme manifestation of that in a subjectively positive or a subjectively negative way, depending on whether the natal thing is sort of described as, you know, productive and helpful or destabilizing and hindering. Um, oh, you got right. the chart there. Yeah. yeah and, and here's the chart. So this is Steven Spielberg's chart. And that's it because that actually ties into some of the stuff we were talking about earlier about sect and house rulership. And that was the context. I think I used this example in a, I think it was a chapter in my book where I focus I on the like, rulers yeah. of the houses. Yeah. I think yeah. So he has a night chart. So Saturn is below the horizon. It's set a little bit after or, or bef- before he was born. Um, and Saturn, therefore, is the more challenging malefic in his chart. And it's placed in the sixth house or the second house of his personal finances. He has Cancer rising and Saturn's in Leo. So Saturn in the second house. And it's ruling the seventh house of relationships. So I actually first stumbled across this chart because I think there was an astrologer, I forget who it was, who kind of pulled it up to me as like an aha or like like a got you question. And he was like, here's Steven Spielberg's chart, and he has Saturn in the second house in a night chart. So you'd think that his finances would be terrible, but he's actually like, you know, a millionaire. He's a very rich and he's been rich for most of his adult life. So how do you explain that? And then it's by looking at what houses it rules to understand what topics it's importing into the second house. And so it's ruling the seventh house and the eighth house as Saturn in a night chart. And then it was activated as a sort of one-time event at that point, And he had that specific sort of characteristic experience in his life. Absolutely. And it is a good sort of chart because it does summarize some of what we've talked about today. And I think it also highlights the difference between you know, having, say, a difficult planet in a house and how it's importing problems into that part of the life potentially to do with, you know, the Saturn money problem is not you can't earn money. It's that in the context of romantic relationships, there's a bit of an issue potentially uh, because the earning money, you know, can come more from the ruler of the second and the place of that in the chart. 
And of course, career potential comes from the ruler of the 10th and or the ruler of the midheaven. So there's a few, it's funny, I'm giving a, a presentation in Sydney at the end of this week. And one of the points that I want to talk about in the career part is the difference between being successful in one's career and one's financial position, because the two are not always the same. Uh, but anyway, this, that was a really good little chart to uh, to use at the end of our discussion, because I know we could go all day, Chris, couldn't we? Yeah, we could, and we pretty much have at this point. We're about two hours and fifteen minutes in, so I think it is time to time to wrap it up. So, thank you so much for joining me today, Kelly, for this this experiment. This was kind of thrown together on short notice, but I appreciate you sort of venturing into the wild with me for this um, experiment in in astrology and technology. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. I always enjoy our chats and our shows and I love being able to share with your listeners. So yeah, anytime. Yeah. Um, and while I'm not currently taking any consultations, you are actually still scheduling consultations, right? I am. I am booking now about six weeks ahead. So I'm already well into June, but if anybody is interested, yeah, basically I've got spots open for June and July and uh, yeah, I'm more than happy to to do charts it, it is one of my favorite things to do. Um, so yeah, anytime. Good. All right. So people can find out more information on your website, which is kellysastrology.com, right? Yes. Thank you. Okay. Brilliant. And for me, although I'm not doing consultations, I am teaching my online courses on Hellenistic astrology still where I use many of the same techniques and demonstrate how to use them using example charts in pre-recorded videos that you can watch on my course site. So you can find out more information about that at uh, theastrologyschool.com. So I think that's it for this episode of the Astrology Podcast. So thanks everyone for listening. Thanks to everybody who showed up to the uh, live stream. Uh, I really appreciate it. Uh, this is a bit of an experiment, but I think it went well enough that I'd like to try it again in the future and hopefully have more people on. I think one of the next times I'd actually like to do what we did with Marin at the end and have you know some of the people asking questions on directly so that we can try to more authentically recreate what happens in a, in a client or a consulting setting of getting that, making those statements and getting that immediate feedback one way or another, and then going from there. Yeah, I think that'd be fantastic. Great resource for students, for sure. Sure. Awesome. All right. Well, thanks everyone for, for joining us today. Thanks everyone for listening. Uh, you can find out more information about the podcast at theastrologypodcast.com. And uh, yeah, I guess that's it. So we'll see you next time.